Advent teaches us that God shows up. And it teaches us how we wait well until he does. So beginning next week, we will be waiting together for God to show up. Today, our final week in the lectionary of the calendar year, uh, we will be getting another long parable from Jesus about the end of all things. Uh, Remember, this is a portion of Matthew where there's an entire discourse Uh, two full chapters of Jesus teaching his disciples and those following him and those who don't follow him about what the end times will be like Uh, when all the waiting is over, whether we waited well or whether we didn't, what will that time look like? And Jesus answers that question with his eschatological discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, And our text today is the last parable Jesus gives to help us give a picture of what that day will be like. And and last week we learned that the economy of God is not like our economies here on earth. And in the economy of God, what you use and give multiplies by two, it doubles. And what you hold on to and what you save and what you conserve vanishes and is lost. Last week, Jesus taught us that he expects us to use the gifts that he has given us to make good of his kingdom, our love and our mercy, our joy, our incomes, our abilities, and our times, everything that God has liberally blessed us with, God expects you to use it and risk it and give it for his kingdom. So last week was setting the expectation that we are to use what God gives us, uh, not to hold on to it. And this week, Jesus will tell us what that might practically look like. Uh, It is still a parable though, still a parable. Remember, all parables are limited in that they aren't perfect photographs of the kingdom of God, but They are excellent ways to teach us and to challenge us uh, and to challenge us to consider if we are waiting well or if we are not. So we will be in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Bibles in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, keep that one. And if you want to study the Bible together, email me. We'll set up a time. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. For context of this passage, Jesus is in the final weeks, maybe even the final days of his life. He's in Jerusalem, surrounded by the religious leaders, uh, the occupying Roman authorities, and people who are either with him or against him. And for the last two chapters, he's been teaching with a lot of urgency about the end of all things. And these are These are some of the last things he'll ever teach. In fact, this parable today is the last thing he ever teaches, ever. And so there's a lot of urgency with it. Uh, There's a lot of heaviness in these parables. He needs to emphasize that what he is talking about is serious stuff. He's telling us what a life lived following him ends with. This is what he's going to judge by when he's seated in glory and ready to judge the nations. 
And he does this through a series of parables. No one parable exists in a vacuum, as we will learn shortly. You can't just get all of your theology about the kingdom of God from one parable. And that's why throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus has given you 23 parables, 23 pieces to a mosaic that give us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. It takes parables because it's ultimately indescribable. It's something that needs to be experienced and lived out to understand it. So Jesus wraps up his earthly teachings with a parable. And this is the last teaching of Jesus because in the next chapter, he's arrested. In the next chapter, he's executed. In the next chapter, he resurrects from the dead. So our text today is truly the last thing Jesus says. It's urgent, it's a warning, and it's a call to live a Christian life and not just have a Christian life. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Uh, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version this morning. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you did not give me food. I was thirsty, and you did not give me drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you. And then he'll answer, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When we get a challenging text or a challenging parable like this, the best thing to do is to trust that Jesus knows what Jesus is doing. We don't have to make excuses on behalf of Jesus. He is the creator of all things, including your conscience. 
Rather than make excuses for his words, what we need to do is allow the great teacher to teach us. Allow his challenging words to challenge you. Challenging texts are just that. They're texts, they're words, and they're sentences. But what makes them challenging is usually there's an incongruence that needs to be dealt with. So allow Jesus to challenge you, trusting that he knows what he is doing with you. As I said earlier and last week, there are no perfect parables to describe the kingdom of God. All of them represent one aspect or another, and none of them give a perfect photograph, but together they give us a clearer picture of what the kingdom of God is like. All of the pictures together give us the best representation of God's kingdom. Some things are just too big to photograph. Now, kind of like the earth, I'm not a flat earther. I'm not, (laughs) okay? I'll show my cards on that one. I'm fine with that. But most of the flat earthers are right when they say most of the images that we have that show the whole earth are composite images because we're just too close to the earth to get one single photograph of the whole thing. We're just too close. Uh, It's just too big to get in one image because we're too close to it. And the same is true with the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's close, it's here, and it's close to us, but it's also so big and too big to wrap our little minds around it. And so Jesus gives us a lot of parables, like like a composite of pictures to help us say, oh, this is what the kingdom of God is really like. The parables all work together, and this one is no exception. Our parable today works in tandem with the two just before, and one of them we read last week. It's an eschatological parable, and so it goes with the other eschatological parables. Together, they give us a fuller picture of what's going on. So last week, Jesus was telling us that God has given each of us an immense amount. Your Bible uses the word talent that we are expected to use and spend and risk as a way to wait for his arrival. Love, grace, mercy, joy, income, coffee, Whatever God has blessed you with, he expects you to use it for his kingdom and wait well for him. Last week was setting the expectation. This week is how we meet the expectation. Last week we were told we have a lot to use and this is how we use it. The parables are connected that way. This parable is about examining how active we are in God's kingdom as we wait for his arrival. It's about activity, living out our real lives. Remember, this is a common theme in the book of Matthew. And the way Jesus connects these two parables, the last one and this one, is with inactivity. Inactivity. Did you notice that? What determined if it was a sheep or a goat? It's by what they didn't do. Jesus didn't say, you murdered, you cheated, you stripped someone of their dignity, you ended up in prison, you were unwelcoming, your sexuality wasn't what everybody said it should be, you were unfaithful, your theology was a little off, you did this and you did that. 
None of that stuff. In fact, if you read this parable in thought, all sheep are believers and all goats are unbelievers, I would challenge you to reconsider. Because that's not what this parable says. You might infer that and you might interpret it that way, but that's not what it says. It says that all the nations will be gathered and how many of us know that we aren't the only nation of people that have believers in it. God's kingdom is made up of people from every nation. This parable is just as legitimately interpreted to say that it applies to only believers rather than the whole world. In fact, the image of Jesus as a shepherd would lend to this idea because that would mean the sheep and the goats are a part of the shepherd's flock. If we look at the fuller picture with the other parables in mind, specifically the one just before this, it becomes more clear to me that this parable hinges on the inactivity of the goats. They didn't feed because they didn't love. They didn't give drink because they gave no mercy. They didn't welcome strangers because they gave no grace. They didn't clothe the naked because they didn't want to give up their own things. They didn't visit the sick or the people in prison because they had no joy in anything but themselves. In other words, they were given an immense amount, a talent, if you will, and they buried it in the ground and did nothing with it. (coughs) It's the same story as last week, just told differently, maybe told more practically. It's about leaving things undone. Not what you've done, but what you haven't done. What have we left undone? What have you left unused? What love has God given you that you've withheld? And from whom? Maybe the better question is this. Has your life been active in God's plan to renew all things and all people? Maybe that's too big of a question, actually. Maybe it needs to be more practical since this parable literally gives us categories of people to use our talents for. Maybe the better question is, what can it look like for me to be more active with my talents? What can I do to make sure that I don't end up like a goat? leaving things undone in service to Jesus. Here at Sweetwater Christian Church, we have an entire committee dedicated to serving people within the church and outside of the church. And they have their own budget and everybody can be on that committee. Maybe not everybody, that would be a lot. But anybody can be on the committee and anybody can give to that specific budget. That's one way that we can. We literally have a food drive happening for the next couple of weeks. There are people in our community that are hungry. Will we feed them? That's another way. Simple tithes and offerings so that the gospel can continue being lived out in us and in our community. That's another way. But again, it's not what we do. It's what we don't do. However, we are active in service to Jesus, as long as it's to Jesus and to those that he identifies with, that is a sheep life. 
This is an old concept in scripture. The prophet Micah told us long before Jesus walked the earth, he told us what God requires of us. He said to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Goat lives hoard and keep and are conservative with what God gave them. We want to be sheep to whom Jesus says, come, come on in, inherit this kingdom that's been prepared for you. As I studied this text for this sermon today, I felt like I learned a lot about this parable. You know, sometimes you read a passage from scripture or you read an entire paragraph of the Bible and you think, yeah, I know what this is about. I originally sort of felt this way about this text. I I figured I just sort of knew what I was going to say this morning, uh, which was going to be nice because we traveled for Thanksgiving and finding time to write was going to be hard to come by. And so I kind of needed to know what I was going to say But the more I studied, the more I realized that I was coming to a new realization of this text. And I began to realize by reading various theologians and commenters that this is indeed a judgment parable. But as author Brad Jerzak puts it, this is a judgment for, not a judgment of. What does that mean? A judgment for, but not a judgment of. Well, I think it means that we think too much about ourselves. For example, I think it's good for us to think and examine our lives and to see if we are actively serving Jesus and growing in his kingdom with with what he gave us. We do need to do that, maybe even every day. But I think we would be missing a lot about this parable if that's all we did, if we just sort of stopped there if all we did was worry about our sheep deeds and our goat deeds each day. Again, that's good. And this parable challenges us to think about those things and to make those changes in our lives. But this parable is just as importantly, just as importantly exists to tell us for whom the restoration of all people and all things is for. You see, you and I, we read this parable. We might even avoid this parable because when we read this parable, we worry. We worry about our sheep status. We want to be a sheep. We don't want to be a goat. But there are people in this world who read this parable and they rejoice. There are people who read this and they don't find worry. They find relief. Relief that Jesus identifies with them. Those that we usually skirt by. The hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. There's more of them in this world than maybe we realize. Jesus not only identifies with them, not the sheep and the goats, He identifies with them, and this final judgment scene is for them. Each time they get skirted by by you and me, they become lifted up here by Jesus. For each time they get skirted by over and over again, as we went through the gospel of Matthew, we heard Jesus say those who will be 
the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We heard him say that over and over again. And he actually means that. Those whom he, sorry, those whom we put last so many times here will have their time of justice one glorious day. God told us this would happen long before Jesus. King David wrote in a poem at some point in his life, a poem that we now call Psalm 103, King David said, the Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. This is what God just does. God builds up those that we've torn down and God works out justice for those whom have known oppression, the hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. And that's not an exhaustive list. God doesn't forget about those whom we often forget about. He vindicates them. And I would dare to say that this parable goes even further than that because Jesus says those people are him. We have a food drive like this. And when we have one, Jesus says, when we feed those who are hungry in our community, we feed Jesus. That's challenging. What are we going to feed Jesus with in two weeks? That's not meant to condemn us. It's meant to bring the kingdom of God into focus. We just need to allow Jesus the room to challenge our perspectives. When when we take this food to East Fort Bend, we're taking it to Christ himself. We serve a beautiful and mighty king who looks at those that we hardly notice folks that don't have much of anything. And he says, those are my kind of people. He looks at the starving person and he says, she is first in my kingdom. And he looks at the man in prison and he says, he is vindicated in my kingdom. It's challenging because we know that's not us. We're the ones who have an immense amount to give. We have an expectation to meet with what God has given us. And that expectation is to do something with what God has given us, not lay in inactivity. As I studied this passage, I came across some writing from a really old dead guy. Uh, He's actually pretty famous, pretty famous, and probably one of the most masterful theologians that I have ever read. He's a top five kind of guy in my book. Uh, His name is John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom. Maybe you've heard that name, maybe you haven't. He was a a lawyer turned theologian in the 300s. So just 250-ish years after Jesus. And he lived a life that was dedicated to identifying with those who Christ identifies with. So much so that he lived in extreme aestheticism. Now that doesn't happen much here in our world today, but Back in the 300s, it was popular to go sign up at a monastery and starve yourself to death for Jesus. It just was. And what he did is he spent two years alone, almost exclusively standing, hardly ever sleeping, and hardly ever eating. And he did that so much so because he wanted to be serious about identifying with who Jesus identified with. And he did it to the point where he gave himself permanent stomach and kidney damage. And he wrote probably the most challenging words that I've ever seen in regards to this text. Here's what John Chrysostom writes. 
He who said, this is my body, is the same who said, you saw me hungry and you gave me no food. And whatever you did to the least of these, you did also to me. What good is it if the Eucharistic table is overloaded with golden chalices when your brother is dying of hunger? If you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the church door, you will not find him in the chalice. This is not so much a judgment of sheep and goats. This is a judgment for those who Christ identifies with. When we come to challenging texts like this, the absolute best thing we can do is to trust that Jesus knows what Jesus is doing. Allow the words of our teacher to teach us. Allow the holiness and righteousness of our king to examine us. And if we find incongruencies, little parts of our lives that don't quite match up well with the life of Jesus, we must allow Jesus to go beyond challenging us and allow him to change us. As we wait for his arrival, let us use what we have been given in the meantime. Let's pray, and then we'll have communion together as a family. God, thank you for being who you are. I thank you that you challenge us. I thank you that we have things to change. And Father, I ask that you would help us to allow you the room to examine us and to change us. Father, I pray that, uh, that we would be sheep-like people, people who weren't caught in inactivity for your kingdom as we waited for you. Father, we ask that you would help us to wait well for your arrival that we would love you and endear you so much that we just can't wait for you to come back, that we prepare something wonderful for you. We love you, Father. We ask that you would put opportunities in front of us to help us uh, be active in your kingdom. We thank you for who you are, that you, that, uh, you are just in that you are merciful. We thank you that... Even in our shortcomings, you lift us up. And Father, I pray that you would give us grace to go about each day, knowing that the expectation that we have, but also knowing that you are our loving King, friend, and brother. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, amen.